welcome here uh, to this Good Friday service. This weekend is uh, the most important weekend in the church calendar and the most important weekend uh, in history. And uh, I don't think it's coincidence that we celebrate both Good Friday and Easter Sunday uh, on the same weekend. And uh, I'll let you know in a little secret, Good Friday is one of my most favorite services to preach. Uh, and you might think, oh, that's kind of weird. Why is that? Well, uh, Easter Sunday is about victory uh, and deliverance and, and good news, and we're going to get there on, on Sunday. Uh, but uh, Good Friday is why Easter Sunday happened. Good Friday allows us to put our human experiences, uh, give it a framework, an understanding uh, where God is and how God is working, even in disappointment, even in suffering, uh, even when things don't work out the way we want them to. Uh, when we follow Jesus' journey to the cross, we find that Good Friday is this excruciating point for him personally. Uh, but it's through his obedience in that moment uh, that we actually have salvation, forgiveness of sins, and the hope that we have, the good news that we have. Uh, and so it's always good to pause on Good Friday and to think about uh, what Jesus did, but also how that frames uh, our own faith. Uh, we live in a what I would call an Easter Sunday culture, not a Good Friday culture, uh, in, in that we like to think about life, we like to think about victory, we like to think about everything being comfortable and getting better, uh, but we have a harder time, particularly in the West, of knowing what to do with pain and suffering and disappointment, particularly in communities of faith, uh, where we have an eternal hope, um, yet sometimes, even though we have an eternal hope, uh, that makes the, the pain and the disappointment of the present uh, unbearable. Uh, but we see in Jesus that he, he was able to walk through pain, walk through uh, hurt, betrayal, disappointment, on the path, the necessary path to the inter- our eternal hope. Um, you know, part of the reason... Uh, why I think it's valuable for uh, kids to have pets in their house growing up is that they learn how to deal with disappointment uh, and death. Uh, unfortunately, we've got a lot of allergies in our house, so we can't have you know, your traditional cats and dogs. Uh, so we've had to get like fishes. Uh, so we had, a lot of pet, we had a lot of fishes that just died. Uh, we were regularly going to Petland when our kids were little and just exchanging. You know, they have like a return. You get, you get new fish if they die within a certain amount of days. And like we got so many new fish. Uh, just They come to the dick house and they just die. Uh, and then we got geckos. And more recently, my youngest son, he's been buying hamsters. And we've had a couple of hamster deaths uh, in our family. And so uh, all these little losses actually force us to deal with uh, disappointment and, and death in a, maybe a micro scale. Uh, but it's actually teaching kids how to deal with uh, those things when they don't work out the way that you want them to. So this last summer, my youngest son Silas, he had a hamster, and he bought him and named him Walter, Walter the hamster. Uh, and uh, Walter didn't make it very long. Uh, we, we learned some hard lessons uh, through that first hamster, and uh, it, was, it was disappointing, and it was heartbreaking in our house, and there was, uh, there was tears, and uh, I even liked Walter, and I'm not much of a pet guy. Uh, and so, we, so Silas decided that we were uh, going to have a memorial service for Walter, uh, and so he dug him a little grave in the backyard uh, right beside our deck, and he got a rock. He made a tombstone uh, and put Walter on it, 
And, uh, and then he invited his friends over uh, so we could have a, have a service. And so we all gathered in the backyard. Uh, this is all his idea. And uh, uh, he kind of officiated the service and he uh, you know, got his best buddies from around the block to all come over. And he said, now I'd like to, for you all to say a word about Walter. Uh, and so, so each one of them took a turn uh, talking about Walter and what he meant to them. Uh, you know, I think some of them were coming up with ideas. Um, you know, and so we all spoke about Walter. And then uh, at the end of uh, the service time, uh, Silas invites us to gather around, and I didn't know what he was doing, and he pulls out his phone, uh, and he had a slideshow with music, with all of his memories of Walter, and we just stood there in the backyard, and we watched it together, um, which was uh, moving and uh, cute, uh, uh, but, you know, what, part of what I loved about it, it was, it was the learning how to grieve and process disappointment. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a little hamster. But as we grow up and we go through life, we realize that there's lots of expectations that don't get met. There's lots of pain and suffering that we end up walking through. And Good Friday frames these disappointments in our life, especially as people of faith, uh, people that hold to an eternal hope. How do we understand the hardships when they come? Uh, well, we look at Good Friday and we realize that whatever story we might be walking in is not the end of the story, that God is always doing more uh, than we can see then we understand. Uh, and in the end of the Good Friday story, he, he actually uses that story, uses his experience on the cross to bring, bring redemption and ultimate restoration and forgiveness. Um, and so as we look at Good Friday, uh, this Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus proclaiming to be the Son of God, God with flesh on, lived a sinless life, and he had nothing, he, di- he did nothing to deserve this death. He uh, he was without sin, and yet he died this criminal's death on a cross. He was betrayed by friends. He was insulted. He was whipped. Some of those things that we just saw in, that, in, in the video. Uh, and so he walked uh, this path of suffering, not because he deserved it. Uh, he walked it because we deserved it. He walked the road of suffering and judgment, paying the price of our sins, experiencing the fate that he didn't deserve so that you and I could experience the destiny uh, that we didn't deserve. And that's the beautiful uh, and horrific scene of Good Friday. Yet before Jesus got to this point on that Friday, before he said yes to the cross, he actually said yes to the cross uh, earlier than that. He said yes to the cross the evening before. Uh, And so on Good Friday, he was simply living out what he would already kind of resolve to do. He'd already resolved to be obedient to the will of God in his life. uh, And he had this wrestling match with God uh, the night before. And so the night before, and you read about it in Matthew 26 uh, and the other gospels as well. But the night before the crucifixion, uh, him and his disciples were gathering for a Passover meal. uh, And so Jesus uh, was leading them through this Passover meal. And this Passover meal was something that they did. Um, once a year, and they remembered how God in their past had delivered his people, the Jewish people, from the oppression of the Egyptians. And so they were slaves in Egypt, and God wanted his people to be released, to be delivered, to be saved. And so he sent Moses to save them. And Moses, if you know the story, uh, came as God's kind of mouthpiece and, and told Pharaoh if he didn't let his people go that these things were going to happen in his nation. And Pharaoh uh, was stubborn, his heart was hard, uh, and he didn't uh, actually yield himself to what God was asking him to do. And so God sent these, these plagues, these hardships to the nation of Egypt. And the final one uh, was this plague where Moses told 
told the people to take the blood of a lamb, put it on your doorposts, uh, because uh, the angel of death was going to come through and was going to kill the firstborn son of every uh, house that wasn't of every, sorry, every son that was in the house that didn't have this blood on the door, doorpost. And so God's people did that. And then the angel of death came through and there was mourning and there was wailing uh, because of the death that was happening in, G- in Egypt during that time. Uh, and so Pharaoh relented at that point to let God's people go. And so that's where we get the name Passover from. The angel of death passed over these houses uh, to save God's people. And so every year, God's people would gather and they would retell the story through a meal. And as they uh, ate the different parts of the meal, it represented different parts of the story. They would rehearse the story. They would remind themselves what God had done in their past, that he had saved them, and that he, is, uh, also, that he has a plan to ultimately save them as well. And so Jesus, sitting with his disciples at the Passover meal, starts to reframe the whole history into the present. He reframes the history into the present, and he says, you understood that you know, when you ate the bread in the past, when you did this every year, this is what it symbolized. When you, when you actually drank this cup, it symbolized the blood that was spilt, that was shed on the doorpost. And he says, but the bread is now my body that's been broken. It's going to be broken for you. The blood is my blood that's going to be shed for you. And God is doing a new thing. There's a new Passover that's going to happen. It's not for a select group of people, a select nation, but it's actually for the whole world. For anybody who is willing to confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in the heart that, that I was raised from the dead, that this meal represents the new covenant that God is going to make with the new people. And so Jesus proclaims this, and the disciples don't really understand uh, what is happening or what that completely means. Uh, their expectation was that Jesus was going to deliver them from the oppression of the Romans, similar to how God... Uh, rescued the Israelites from the oppression of the Egyptians in their past. But this isn't what happens at all. Jesus is in the business of rescuing people from the ultimate enemy of death and sin, uh, but they don't understand that framework at this time. So Jesus takes his disciples, and then they go into the the garden. Jesus, knowing his own fate before the disciples do, uh, is wrestling over this, and he wants to process this. He wants to pray about it with his Father, with his Heavenly Father. And so he invites a select group of friends to come with him, his best friends. And this is what it reads. Uh, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and, his, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he, asked, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, take this cup. Uh, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep, with me for, keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken from me unless I drink it. May your will be done. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away one more time and prayed a third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered at the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go 
here comes my betrayer. And we know that the, uh, Judas, one of his disciples, betrayed Jesus, and that led to his arrest. Uh, and then from there, we see the events of Good Friday un, unfold. Jesus, in a moment of need, gathers his disciples and says, come with me. You know, I'm going to pray to my Heavenly Father. I need the support of my friends. And he asks his disciples to stay up and keep watch while he went away and prayed. Uh, and so this is the hour of Jesus' greatest need. He brought his best friends there for his support, and he asked them to have his back. And three times he comes back to them and sees that they're sleeping, that they weren't keeping watch, that his moment of greatest need, even his best friends, he couldn't rely on. And here's the truth we see in the Garden of Gethsemane story is that Jesus couldn't control his own disciples. He couldn't make them do anything. He asked them, but he couldn't control his own disciples. Do you like being in control? How many of you guys are control freaks? How many of you guys live with a control freak? Okay, you see more hands went up. Uh, that means that the first question, some of you were lying. Uh, and you're like, I take offense to that. I'm not a control freak. Uh, I just like, uh, you know, I just like being aggressively helpful. Um, <laughs> We all like control. We all wish that we could control our circumstances in the world. And we see that even God with flesh on that Jesus himself couldn't control his own disciples. The Garden of Gethsemane is a story where Jesus has some things in his control and some things that are outside of his control. And we see that he couldn't control his disciples. He couldn't get them to do what he, what he wanted them to do. He had expectations that weren't met. He was disappointed. He even had a request of God that wasn't met. Where is God when things don't go the way that we want them to go? The 2020s have so far been a grand reawakening to the reality that you and I are actually not in control as much as we think we are. We're not in control. And when things don't go the way that we want, where is God in it? Is he missing? Is he causing it? Is he using it? Is he allowing it? Where is God when things get hard? What's happening in these moments when we don't have control, we are experiencing faith for what it actually is. Because for many, we have faith, but it isn't in the faith that we see Jesus had. It's a different kind of faith than biblical faith. In fact, in 2005, there was a study done on the faith of young people in North America, uh, those young people who are now um, old people, uh, like myself, and what was articulated, the general faith of the North American population was referred to as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. In 2005, the study revealed that this was the main faith that was held among people that identified as Christians. And what it describes is not unique to young adults. It's actually unique for our whole culture, I believe, at this time. So what does this mean? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic just basically equates religion or faith with being good, moral, and being a nice person, being a good person. That's the whole point of faith is that I can be a good person, be a nice person, try and make the world a better place. Therapeutic uh, means that faith is a means to improve your life. The purpose of any faith is to make you happier, 
It's to make you more comfortable. It's to make you hashtag blessed. Uh, Therapeutic. That is the point of faith. When I have faith, my life is going to be better. I'm going to be happier. I'm going to be more content. Deism. Deism is belief in a God that is out there somewhere, but he's not involved in my day-to-day life in any real kind of way. He kind of set up the whole creation thing like a wind-up clock, and he wound it up, and then he set it down and kind of lets time tick away, and he's standing at a distance. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. In summary, this means that there's a belief that there's a mostly uninvolved God who exists to make my life better. This was the summary of uh, those who identified as Christians, what their faith was really about in 2005, and I think that's probably just increased over time. Uh, The reality is what we see in that study is that we don't really want a Lord, we want a genie. This pop faith is incredibly challenged when things move beyond our control. This type of faith has a hard time dealing with suffering, disappointment. There's no denying that we live in a disorienting time. Disorient, disorienting time. Uh, things are being shaken up. But this cycle is nothing new. Every era of history have been marked by struggle and pain and chaos. But part of the reason we feel so shaken, disoriented in this time is because uh, we believed in a fundamental assumption over the last few decades. And that assumption is that things would just continue to get better and better and better. It's actually a modern assumption that came out of the Enlightenment uh, where we believe that all the world's problems were solvable by human beings. That if we just worked hard enough, that if we tried to control everything enough, that if we put our minds to it, uh, we could actually solve the world's problems. We could solve our own problems. We can figure it all out. This, This form of belief became known as humanism. Uh, but what, we're, what we see happening uh, over time and why we refer to something called postmodernism is that people realize that this idea of enlightenment, that things are increasingly getting better and better and better over time because humans are so great, is actually a whole facade. This faith in optimism gets disrupted with real life. So faith then can become a way for people to try and get control back in their life when they feel out of control. Faith can be a way to try and get control back in my life. And so we sometimes believe this idea that if I have faith in God, then maybe all this chaos will end and there'll be more, no more disappointment, no more struggling. Uh, but the Christian faith is actually not one of control. The Christian faith is not moralistic, therapeutic deism. As much as we've been lulled to sleep into maybe thinking that that's what it's all about, it's not. God is very present. God does not primarily exist to make our lives more comfortable and better. God is not actually interested in us trying to be better people. He's interested in us being transformed from the inside out, which means we have to realize that we are broken ultimately on the inside. Moralistic therapeutic deism is the opposite of Christian faith. And on the eve of the crucifixion, there were some things that Jesus couldn't control and there were some things that he could. And surrender, we realize in the Garden of Gethsemane, is more powerful than control. Surrender is more powerful than control. What are some things in your life right now that you're trying to control that you need to surrender? Relationships, 
health, finances, future, jobs, kids. Maybe what's going on in your, in your work, in the world around you. What are you clinging to as more important than God's will and plan for your life? The key to this type of faith that lives in this type of space is found between two words in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays this. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed this prayer three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup that he's referring to is this cup of suffering that he was about to drink the next day on the cross. He didn't want to drink it. He didn't want to walk through it. At the end of the day, we see the struggle that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane when he looked forward into the next day and he knew the path that he was being asked to walk and he's going to his heavenly father and saying, God, if there's any, if, if there's any other way, can this cup be taken from me? Can you find another way? And we see that real faith starts between the if and the yet. Real faith starts between the if and the yet. If it's possible, God, if it's possible, this is my desire. This is what I want. This is what I wish would happen. And the yet, yet, ultimately not as I will, but as you will. This is my ask. This is my hope. This is my desire. But my greater desire, my deepest desire, God, is to actually submit my life to you. Faith is lived between the if and the yet. Now, in our world, we often live between the if and the then. Our if-then prayers go something like this. God, if you take this cup from me, then I promise I'll be a better husband. I'll be a better father. God, if you take me out of this situation, I promise I'm going to go to church every single Sunday. God, if you just heal me. Or if you heal this person in my family, then I'm going to live for you for the rest of my life. And you might not think you're consciously praying like this, but you'll see sometimes when things don't go the way that you want, and we start pointing the finger at God, we start pointing the finger at other people, that this has actually been the posture of our heart all along. We've had an if-then posture in our heart. God, I'll give you my life if, if, if you just change this. If-then postures, if-then prayers, that is the faith in an imaginary God. It's not the faith that Jesus had in his Father. It's the faith in the religion of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Jesus demonstrates an if-yet faith. And I love the Garden of Gethsemane story because we see the humanness of Jesus. We see Jesus in his struggle. And I think we can all identify with Jesus in that moment that he's just like, if God, if there's any way, can you please change this situation? But Jesus actually surrenders in that moment and says, even though I have my desires, my wishes, my ultimate desire is to follow you. So yet I will do what you will want me to do. God. And everything in our culture invites us to live contrary to the gospel. You take charge. You control your own destiny. You make it happen. Do this and do this, and then you can achieve this. And there's nothing wrong with having desires. In fact, God loves our desires. But we must remember that to follow the way of Jesus is to surrender control in our lives. And surrender is more powerful than control. 
Surrender changed the world. The surrender of Jesus changed the world for you and me. Jesus' willingness to say yet, Jesus' willingness to obey the will of the Father meant salvation and redemption for you and me. And the pattern continues. God can continue. God continues to do way more with our surrender than our control. Because the truth is, you don't always have the power to control, but you always have the power to surrender. And this is the picture of Good Friday. That Jesus chooses surrender. That Jesus, in his moment of greatest need, in his moment where he doesn't feel like he's in control, actually gives up control. He prays an if yet prayer. And because he prayed that prayer, because he actually obeyed the Father, he made a way for us to be made right with God. And how do we do that? Well, we actually follow the way of Jesus and we pray an if yet prayer. We come to God and we say, God, I have my desires. I have my wishes. I have my longings. But my ultimate desire is actually to submit to you. To give my life to you. Jesus demonstrated an if yet faith. Now Jesus invites us to follow him in the same way. As we come to the communion table, this Good Friday, Jesus was, before he went to the garden, as we mentioned earlier, was around the Passover table, this communion table. And Jesus invited his disciples to this if yet faith. They thought that Jesus was going to deliver them like God delivered his people at the first Passover, but Jesus delivered them from the ultimate enemy of death. And he authenticated the salvation through his resurrection, which we'll talk about on Sunday. But when he invited them to the table, he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember what I've done. They didn't understand what that meant at the moment, but a day later they would. That this was his body that was broken, and in him was true life. In the way that God provided in the past through bread and manna in the wilderness, God provides through us through his broken body for eternity. And then Jesus, taking the cup, said, this is my blood, and it was... shed. It's going to be shed tomorrow for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Jesus made a way for you to receive the forgiveness of sins and to live in relationship with God forever. And he did this by praying, yet not as I will, but as you will. He invites you to come to the table and do the same. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And so this morning on this Good Friday, we remember what Jesus has done. And we remember that by the way that he told us to remember him. And that's by coming to the table. It's an open table. Anybody can come. Anybody can come and receive the forgiveness of sins. Anybody can come and receive the gift of salvation that Jesus gives. But when we come, Jesus invites us to come in the same way that he actually responded to the father with the posture of if yet. Not if and then, but if and yet. God, I come to this table and I submit my desires, my will, my wants, and I confess that my ultimate want 
is actually to live my life for you. And so would you stand with me? Um, And as the band plays, I would like to invite you to respond to what Jesus has done on Good Friday 2,000 years ago that still gives us life and hope today, that reframes our stories in light of whatever pain or struggle you might be walking through and realize that God is not done writing our stories and what he wants is just our yes. And we have four tables in the room at each of the corners. I invite you just to go to a table uh, near you, and there's no rush. It can be a little bit chaotic sometimes in here as we, as we do that, but there's no rush to do that. Um, we have a couple of songs. Uh, so I invite you in your time uh, just to go to the table. There will be somebody to serve you. There's gluten-free options at each table. And as they give you the, the bread, they'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then as they give you the cup, they'll say, this is the blood of Christ spilt for you. And I pray that as you receive that, that you'll be mindful that this was Jesus' if yet moment. And it's also ours. Um, And then anytime during those worship songs, you can take the elements at your own time, uh, whenever you like. So Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation. Jesus, we thank you for your posture of obedience. We are humbled by the choice, Jesus, that you've made to give yourself, to give your ultimate yes for the sake of our salvation and our redemption. And so we remember that this morning. Lord, we respond in the only appropriate way. And so we say, may your will be done in our lives. We give you our yes. So we take this bread that represents your body. We remember your broken body for us. We take this this, uh, juice that represents your blood. And we remember your spilt blood for us. And we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for uh, joining us on Good Friday as we remember what Jesus has done and how that continues to change the way that we live uh, even 2,000 years later. Uh, we invite you back on Sunday where, uh, for 9 and 11. We have our uh, Easter Sunday uh, where we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus uh, and how this uh, Good Friday actually set the stage for what Jesus was going to do for us. Um, So we invite you back on Sunday. Uh, There are prayer teams uh, that will be available. We'd be happy to pray for you if you feel like there's anything uh, in your life that you want to receive prayer for. Just just come forward and we would be pleased to do that. Um, So go in peace and we'll see you on Sunday. Thank mm-hmm. you.